another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Alrighty, guys, we're back with another episode of Behind the Vinyl. Uh, Nicholas is here. A little bit different now. We're doing advice, guys. Hey, Nick. Hello. How are you? Good, mate. Good. Um, and we're joined on the other end by a dear friend of mine, Michael McKeegan from uh, the band Therapy. Hello, Michael. Hello. Yes, thank you, Darren. Hiya, Nick. Thanks for having us, mate. Uh, really, uh, really great to be chatting to you um, all the way across the ocean here in reasonably sunny Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's good. Lovely. Um, so we thought it was really fitting to give you a uh, give you a call around about now because you've literally just last week released the greatest hits. Your greatest hits, two thousand and twenty version. It's the hits with a twist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Um, yeah, it, it, it literally just came out there um, um, sort of halfway through this month. So we've just been uh, um, enjoying hearing the feedback to that and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, it's, it's I suppose, for a band that, like us that's been around, you know, 30 years now, it just is a nice little kind of, um, I suppose it's a bonus ball, we would call it. You know, it's not indicative of a new direction or anything like that or it's not so rose tinted that we didn't want to go and kind of, you know, try something different with it as well. So it was kind of a good little, um, we wanted it to be fun being the 30th anniversary. You know, we wanted it to be kind of a bit more on a plate and just um, a good celebration of the the band's history and, and look at those kind of songs, which were, or re-look at those songs, which were big, big hits for us back in the 90s. So it's been a really um, enjoyable project. Let's uh, let's kick in and we'll play um, Teeth Grinder at the start and we'll be back um, straight afterwards.
Alrighty, we're back. That was Keith Grinder. Um, so let's go right back from there. Um, yeah, 30, 30, 31 years now you've been in therapy. Yep. It's uh, 1989 was the first show, but we kind of counted from 1990 because that's when we had the first, you know, the debut single, and that was when it all kind of really, really fell into place. So, yeah, th- 30, 30 and a bit years. Well, how do you feel about, do you feel that? about that? That's that's insane. <laughs> I I think it's insane every day, Nick. That's why I, I literally go, this is this is nuts. You know, from from when I think back to how we started the band and um, you know, what kind of limited ambitions, if any, we we had. It's 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 quite amazing that the band's still around and you know, we all still really enjoy it. And um people really seem to enjoy listening to us still. So it's it's a real um a real privilege and an honor. It's it, it's been amazing, an amazing 30, 30 years. So honing in on uh, Teeth Grinder, you've never recorded that since, right? You've never done anything with that since initially recording it in 1992. It was on the Nurse record. Um, so this is the first time, apart from live, this is the first time you've you've played it in, in the studio? Yeah, this is, this is the first time we kind of, revisited you know most of the songs in the record but teeth grinder especially was one we wanted to look at because the nurse album which it's off the production was a bit guitar light for our tastes and it's kind of um you know i understand that you know things you, you look at in retrospect it's it's over time and over place and all that but that was one of the little um not, not a bugbear but things that we were always a bit like uh, if only we've been a bit more um, you know, pushed the guitars a bit. And Chris Sheldon, the, the the producer, he started working with us on Trouble Gum, which was the album that came after Nurse. And he was well aware of the band at the time. And he said he loved Teeth Grinder, but he always felt that he could have uh, done a, a much beefier version. So <laughs> he kind of laid down the gauntlet for himself when we went in to re-record it, because then he had to kind of bring, bring his best, his beef a game so to speak <laughs> and and literally the, the whole record is a little bit more beefy it's uh it, it's really great that's the one thing so you recorded it in one day right yeah we we um the joke was that we've been doing the pre-production for about 28 years so we uh <laughs> we we felt that we needed to put a good you know keep it quite strict to keep keep the energy up as well and um, Chris was keen to work in Abbey Road. He felt that was the right, you know, the right place to do it. And then the studio was fantastic. It was like right out of the box. We just set up the gear as we would live and it just sounded brilliant. You know, we, we got set up in a couple of hours and then we just said, we're not going to over egg it. We're going to do three takes. And if we don't get it by the third tech, there's going to be something in the previous tech that was good. So, you know, normally in the third run through or the second, Teeth Grinder was the second run through we did actually. And that was it. We just did it like that. And then Andy went back and did vocals. We added the samples on Teeth Grinder um, later. And um, that that was pretty much it. You know, we, we did all the tracking that one day and then Chris mixed it at his place uh, later in the week. So it was kind of, you know, we were confident because we knew that the songs really, really well, but we also wanted to, you know, not make them scrappy either you know we didn't want them just to sound throwaway we wanted them to have a a weight and a sonic kind of you know a contemporary sonic relevance these days yeah, you know yeah. so um yeah it was it was really interesting getting that balance and and 
just to keep the energy there as well. That was that was important, and that was something that Chris really uh, wanted to do as well. You know, it's you know you're looking at songs you recorded, you know, when you were in your very early twenties. You know, thirty years later, you don't want to sound like you're out of breath wheezing along. So it was it was important to keep that up, and also with some of the songs, with the tunings are slightly different. Um, Scream Major and Nowhere are in and Die Laughing I think are in their original kind of you know standard tunings but the other ones like Turn and Teeth Grinder they're two semitones down in D standard and that's something we've been doing a lot live for, for many years now so we just pick which ones that you know you don't want it to go too low because then it can get a bit Elvisy and croony with the vocals But what Abbey Road as well I mean what's it like recording at Abbey Road, is there like a certain atmosphere to to that whole studio and all that? Is that something you can kind of feel the history of the place? Well, I, I'd never been there. I know um, Andy, our singer-guitarist, he'd been there when we'd had albums mastered there before. So I was very intrigued to go and see exactly what the vibe was. And I, I was almost a bit concerned it could possibly be a little bit corporate you know they do right. a lot of you know, big movie soundtrack stuff in there, and and obviously you know big pop bands and stuff like that. But it was it was brilliant. It was really good atmosphere. Everyone was really, you know, from the receptionist right through to the you know the 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 guy that was moving the mics and making the coffee, the assistant and stuff. We we had a really good. Uh, you got a good vibe off them, and they all seemed to be, you know, really into it for the right reasons. So it was good. You know, I I'd obviously read up a little bit in the history of the studio and stuff. So that was, that was amazing. You know, it's definitely, you know, for, for the level of the studio, it's definitely got the vibe there. And, you know, as I said, we've never recorded there. So it was a bit of a, bit of a day out treat for us as well, you know, cause you know, being music nerds and interestingly, <laughs> this is, this is one of the most surreal ones. We went down to have our dinner in the canteen and we were eating you know, or veggie noodles or whatever. And a guy came in and was talking to Chris Shell. And then he says, oh, do you mind if I join? He sat down. And then for me, the penny dropped that it was Giles Martin, who's Chris Martin, obviously Beatles producer, very famous, uh, um, George Martin's son. So he then sat and had lunch with us. And I was going, oh, my God, this is just nuts. And <laughs> in Abbey Road, you know, we're all these legendary records. On, and I'm talking about, you know, random stuff with Giles Martin. And he... He he'd obviously worked with Chris Sheldon before on I think the Rocket Man soundtrack they'd done at Abbey Road. So that was, you know, from a music nerd point of view, um, I really enjoyed what he'd done with those Beatles remasters and remixes, Giles. So it was just really cool. That was another, you know, another little tick for what was already a brilliant day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> how many um how many studios are there there? Is there two studios in there? There's there's three actually. Okay. There's three, yeah. They were doing strings for um i can't remember the movie but it's, it's one of the movies in next door and the girl that was doing the strings she used to work at a label we were signed to so she called in at one stage so it was all a very a very fun kind of day you know it was it was good you know obviously we were you know didn't want too many distractions but it it definitely made it feel a lot more like home and you know you you, you feel welcome you know kind of that kind of vibe and obviously you know that the gear and the actual quality was you know super top notch so that was a big a big win in all fronts
break any hearts I'm thinking like that won't make any friends Screw that, forget about that I don't wanna think about anything like that Screw that, forget about that Let's let's swing it back to the record, uh, Screw Major. So that was um, Chris was then on board there. How how did Chris feel, and how did you feel going back and recording that? Well, that was one of the ones I was a bit not not ner- nervous, but just kind of we had to do it respectfully. You know, people don't want it half time, and we didn't want to do a rework of it, but we wanted just to give it a bit more of that. You know punch of where we're at now and for, for the whole record none of the songs the original recordings had Neil Drummond on them so for from his point of view he it was a big you know a big statement for him to to, to do his versions but you know obviously keep them and um, do them in his style but keep them respectful to the originals so and um, it, it was good you know it was it, it came out great really you know we we nailed it pretty quick yet again and we, we did them actually the, the order they're in the record we actually recorded them in that order so we did teeth oh, first and then scream major we just did it next so we were kind of about four or five songs into it before i realized that scream major was done and dusted so we kind of hadn't even time to dwell which was probably again another benefit of uh just do, going in and doing it kind of in that sort of one day format but yeah it was it was good it came out great and um as I always say to people, there's always the original. We haven't deleted the original. <laughs> the original still exists. <laughs> this is just our kind of take on it where we're at now. So, um, and it's it's gone down really well. It's you know, you know, I wouldn't obviously liken it to such classics, but you you don't really want to hear. Sometimes you don't want to hear Stairway to Heaven or Ace of Spades re-recorded, particularly. So you you really don't want to mess it up. No, I, I think it's great, and and the fact that you did it all in one day—it's got the really uh, 
that really kind of raw, really organic feel to it. I, I think it's fucking great, man. This is this is really cool. Yeah. And like you said, it's great to great to have Neil on there. Um, Nick Neil Neil joined the band basically when I started working with him. His, his first album was High Anxiety. Um, he's a he's an amazing drummer, man. Absolutely amazing drummer. Yeah, he's um he's he's unbelievable. It's brilliant playing that playing with him, and you know he's very um you know I think he's he's just got a good take on things because it you know it would have been easy for him to say well I don't want to play in these songs or I want to change them or I need to do a different fill at the start of Scream Major, but um, Neil's a drummer that really plays for the song. You know he's he can be super technical and you know. You haven't really lived till you've seen a mare drum along the rush, for example. You know, he's such a, a nerd with technical uh, proggy type drum and stuff, but he really knows when to go, okay, this is the verse. The vocals are key here. Let's focus on that. You know, he's, he's very um, um, respectful of the song. And some drummers, even though they're brilliant, will tend to do fills over everything and stuff like that so he's he really knows when to turn on the ability which is great you know it's really good for us love it um so you you said you're you're playing through did you literally play it like a live show you literally ran through the whole set oh you were stopping and starting in between um a, a couple of the ones we just well you know we would take a break and go in and, and get a coffee and stuff but it was we didn't play it from start to finish in like a 40 minute, 45 minute type thing, but we just did a, a few and then Chris was going, that one sounds good. And occasionally, obviously we'd he'd say, well, come in and just check if this is, we're in the right ballpark here. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was, you know, it was a proper, we put in a proper shift, you know, it was good. i 
let's go back to these. Um, I think Nick and I always talk about this shit, like going back to what it was like, <clears throat> say when the Trouble Gum record come out, for instance, let's just hone in on that for now. Um, Cause that's when I saw something the other day, the first time you were at um, fucking Donington festival. Uh, there was a, a documentary that I, that I saw. Um, can you remember back then around 94, uh, early 95 when, when Trouble Gum was a massive album over there and you guys were just blowing up. Can you remember back to those times? Oh, absolutely. You know, that was such a, an amazing kind of experience for, for, you know, for us as a band and for us as people. You know, there were so many, like, we, you know, I, I've been going through a lot of, like, old diaries and stuff I found, and it's it's just nuts, the scheduling. You know, every day there was some really amazing stroke mind blowing going on you know lots of new opportunities and um you know i remember that donington specifically very very well because up until maybe 93 the majority of our press in the uk anyway had come from more like an indie alternative kind of thing and with scream Edger at the start of 93 uh the single a lot more of the metal press like Kerrang and Metal Hammer and Raw in the UK really came on board. And um, I remember when we were asked to do Donington, our record label were really nervous. They were like, well, you're kind of perceived as this maybe more of a art rock alternative kind of band. And I was like, no, I I love metal. We all we all love metal. I have read about these Donington lineups, you know, since time immemorial, you know. So, you know, we're bloody well going to do it. <laughs> and do you know what? It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. Crowd reaction was great. You know, uh, it was a good day. Where you know, it was it, it was a nice bill because we also had Pantera, Sepultura on the bill as well, and Slayer also played that you know, which kind of offset extreme and maybe more of the classic rock type things that were on the go. So it was, uh, we, we, we fit it right in. It was a really good day. You know, it was, it was brilliant. And I think, um, I think we're probably the only band to have ever started their set with a Joy Division cover at Castle Donington. So that's quite <laughs> <laughs> proud of that fact. <laughs> well, people probably don't know that you're, like dude you're one of the most metal people i know um you're definitely fully into the heavier side of it as well yeah yeah, yeah. well you know we, we've kind of got a good a good mix of of interests right across the band and and my background was kind of you know heavy metal new wave of british heavy metal going into thrash and then death metal and black metal and and through through the 80s now you know and and, and onwards so yeah no i'm, I'm always you know, I'm a big, born, you know, born and bred a metalhead, you know, and obviously, you know, with the band and stuff, there's, there's, you know, Andy's kind of from more of a punk background. Uh, Neil, Neil was a metalhead back in the day, you know, Slayer and Metallic were his kind of, you know, I think we saw a lot of the same tours, all of us, you know, we, me and Andy were at the Metallic Ulster Hall show in Belfast in 87, you know, 10 days before Cliff Burton died, for example, didn't know each other, of course, but we were there. And um, I think with, with Northern Ireland especially, you know, we've often talked about it because the scene was quite small. It didn't really matter if you like metal or goth or indie 
you know, you, you kind of just all stuck together. So you would hear bands like the Dead Kennedys and I would hear stuff like Susie and the Banshees and the Sisters of Mercy. Um, so it wasn't quite so tribal because, you know, everyone else seemed to either be into pop music or or thought heavy metal was Bon Jovi or Brian Adams, you know, which, you know, we were kind of more into Slayer and Venom and Possessed and, you know, stuff like that. But also enjoying, you know, hearing the more, you know, Sonic Youth and some of the, the late 80s kind of noise rock bands coming through, like Jesus Lizard and On Into Helmet and stuff. So um, it was good. But yeah, metal's kind of my background, you know. I'm looking down here, looking at my, my KK Downing biography I'm going to read and my David Vincent biography I'm going to read in a bit. Uh, I've got all my books lined up, you know, because I can't go out of the house. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is it's good. And I think, you know, over the years, I've really begun to appreciate the longevity and kind of the, the, the art form of metal more and more. And I think it's in very rude health with a lot of the, you know, newer bands and stuff. There's there's great records coming out all the time, so it's it's fantastic. Well, you mentioned Metallica, and I spoke to Andy uh, about two years ago when your last album, latest album, came out, Sleeve. And yes, uh huh. Mentioned how you you came into the studio one day with this effects pedal, this Cliff Burton thing that you were supposed to review for a bass magazine guitar, and it ended up being uh, like a part of the song "Save Me from the Ordinary." Kind of yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. I was um, asked by a, a good friend, the editor of Bass Guitar Magazine, uh, Joel McIver. He, right. um, I, I wrote a column for them, and he said, "I got an email saying I've got the perfect thing for you to review," and it was the reissue of the Cliff Burton signature Fuzzwa Morley pedal. So I was really excited, and of course, as soon as I got it, it was never going to go back. You know, so. <laughs> I said to Joel, how much money do I need to send to the, the distributor? You know, how much? So I paid paid for it. And then um, I love the sound of, you know, that kind of Cliff Burton, that overdriven wah sound anyway. So we were kind of, you know, it was always there in the studio, you know, and any excuse I'd be like, a little, shall we, shall we? No, no, not now, Mike. Not now. <laughs> so the, the fact that saved me from the ordinary had a, that baseline at the intro, I just that was kind of you know that was the green light as far as I was concerned. So it was um, good fun, you know. And it's you know that's my a little well probably a very obvious nod to Cliff Burton there. It's not particularly subtle, but yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh, was good fun to do. And I think you have to kind of run with these things as well. There was a there was a track on a Gujira album I heard not so long ago, and there was definitely a a Cliff Burton Fuzzwa thing going on. I can't remember the name of it. It might have been on Magma. I think there's a track. I'll have to go back and reinvestigate. So it's kind of little little subtle nods to to to, to our heroes, I suppose, and big influences. Smiling at me I know I 
Just drop two heroes there, like Dave Vincent and um, and Cliff Burton. <laughs> Three heroes, Joel MacGyver, of course. Shout so, out yeah. to Joel. Um, who else is is your uh, your big bass influencers? Um, I always love Phil in it. <clears throat> of course, you know, yeah. he's you know um, Geezer Butler. I've been listening to a lot of Sabbath recently, and I've kind of um, gone back and kind of really begun to reappreciate what geezer butler does you know i always knew he is brilliant but i think a lot of the songs like like war pigs and stuff like that you just kind of it's because you've heard them so many times you nearly take them for granted and then when you kind of step away a little bit and then you 
go back and go through it. It's like, wow, this guy's the way he plays across riffs. A lot of people just think, you know, in that kind of metal, you know, the the bass is doubling, you know, what the guitar is doing, but Geezer plays right across the guitar riffs and the way he plays with Bill Ward, obviously, an amazing drummer there. So it's kind of I've really been enjoying all that. And I did I did do the classic. I started with Black Sabbath and worked right through the eighties, you know, seven star, you know, Tony type soulie type stuff. And then through all the you know, the the nineties stuff, you know, like um, Headless Cross, which is a great album. Um it's a wonderful album. Tony Martin stuff, great. Yeah, he's he's a brilliant singer, you know, and um yeah, you know, obviously Geezer didn't play on all of those albums, but you know, it's it's really enjoyed listening to that all again. You know, a lot of the I suppose maybe different things. I really like bizarrely enough, you know the Sleaford Mods? The band no. Sleaford Mods, they're like an English it's kind of electronic music with a guy ranting about stuff that's annoying him and it's brilliant. The lyrics are really clever, but the whoever programs their bass lines, the bass lines are kind of really hooky. They're like little riffs within riffs. It's obviously all sequence and stuff. Sleaford Mods, they're from Nottingham. They're really, really, really brilliant, but they've got really catchy, you know, sort of repetitive bass lines that are just, they're kind of simple, but you think, oh, why didn't I write that? That's a really good hooky bass line. And um, obviously, you know, Joy Division, great bass lines as well. Big fan of Peter Hook. Uh, kind of, you know, brought his own thing to that. But yeah, it, it it really changes. Phil Phil Lennox, I think he really, um, you know, the guy's singing and writing all the songs as well, which is a big makes it even more impressive. And I think he's quite a, he's got a really good melodic ear for walking bass lines. So that would have been a big big one originally. to breathe Give me a reason to 
I'm, I'm thinking because uh, you, you've got uh, James Dean Bradfield on, on the song Die Laughing. Yeah. How did all that come about? Well, we kind of, um, we've known the Manic since pretty much they started. You know, we would have come up, you know, at the same time, you know, late 90s, early, sorry, late 80s, early 90s. And, um, you know, we, we bumped into them loads of times and we got on very well with them. They um, actually in 94 on a French Trouble Gum tour, they'd support us and we got to know them a little bit better. Um, they just released the Holy Bible and uh, we were obviously touring Trouble Gum at the time. So it was a good, that was a great bill. We were really excited and we got on very well with them. Um, Richie and Nicky are quite shy, so we wouldn't have hung out with them that much. But John and James especially, um, we kept in touch Andy's quite close with James and whenever we play in Cardiff where he lives he uh, he would come down to the shows and we we had a, a mad idea for our 20th anniversary we were maybe going to have some guests come up and play songs with us and James had offered and said look I'd really like to do Die Laughing you know live with you but when we booked the shows he obviously was busy with the Manics so that was kind of put on hold. And then this summer, sorry, last summer, we did a festival in Portugal with them. And um, we were just chatting to them and stuff. And then we just had a really good laugh. And James did say, look, it's your 30th anniversary next year. Maybe I'll be able to get up and do this flaming song with you, okay? Because we've been talking about it for like 10 plus years now. So, um, yeah, we, we obviously did the recording. And, and Andy said, look, I'll give James a shout. If he's free, he might be able to you know, and wants to do it, he might be up for doing it. So, um, yeah, he said, brilliant. Yeah, send it to me. So we we obviously did our thing in Abbey Road, and then the the tracks just went up to his place in Wales, and he recorded with their engineer, Laws Williams. So um, that was really exciting for me because, obviously, we just said, Jim, do your thing. You know, and he said, well, I'll do a solo maybe. And then we said, well, you can sing a bit if you want as well. So just do whatever you do. So it was really interesting hearing what he'd come back with, you know, because <laughs> like we knew we were in safe hands, but you just don't know whether he's suddenly going to start. Maybe he's been listening to a lot of Van Halen and does a lot of tapping over the whole... You never, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I would have minded. That might have been pretty cool, but he was... Um, yeah, it was very respectful to the song, which was great, you know. And I love his voice and I love his guitar playing anyway. Um, one of the funniest things... You know, I'm going off off script here a bit, but when we watched them in Portugal, they did a cover of Sweet Child of Mine, but they played the whole song. And um, James really nailed it. You know, he's he's the lead guitarist, lead singer. He's doing a lot of work up there. And there's a brilliant bit just before he kicked into the main solo. He just shouted into the mic, wish me luck. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it perfectly, but I, I think it kind of went over the head of the... 20,000 Portuguese people watching, but it was just, he, he didn't need luck. He's such a great player. He didn't need luck. He needed it. it is definitely a great, great, great version. Uh, that That's probably, that and probably Diane is probably the most distinctly different out of all of them. Uh, Diane, obviously more suited to, to how you've been playing it live lately. That, that Your bass in that is so prominent and so, so heavy it's sounding amazing oh cool yeah we we i'm glad a few people have said that you know that's obviously quite a radical 
departure from from our original cover version of it. You know, it's much more in line with the the Husker Du version um, that we obviously did the cover of. So, um, yeah, we 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 have been playing it live like that. Although we we did we had been doing it with the string version a few times. Obviously, you know, you you can't take a a string or a cello quartet and tour with you. Uh, just to play one song, it's a bit of a financial ask. So we we had a like a um, like a sample of it. We would run, and Andy would sing it live. And you know, it it really does. You have to choose the night to do that version because, um, you know, sometimes you get people, you know, get on with it, <laughs> turn it up, <laughs> you know. And then other nights, you know, the, the crowd will be totally silent and respectful and you could hear a pin drop. And when that works, it worked really well. So sometimes, especially at a festival, it's better just to, you know, for, you know, just to put the song across better, just to play it full on as per the Husker Du version. So we did, we, we thought that it would be good to do it like that and get a proper recorded version of it down. It's, it's another one that's tuned down a couple of steps, I think. I think that really drives it along and we've played it sometimes a much faster version and sometimes a more slower version of it also. But I think we 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 got a good tempo in this Chris Shell. And that was one of the ones we tweaked the tempo a bit just to make sure because it's kind of a longer song and it is, you know, it's kind of three notes repeated. You know, the the, the verse and the chorus are kind of um it's the same chord sequence. So we, we wanted to make sure that yeah, the dynamics were there. That's the, the word I'm looking for. We wanted to be dynamic. So, um, yeah, it, it, it came out really good. And I think a lot of people were are, are glad to hear it, you know, that that version that we have been playing live.
streets for a little while I put all your clothes in a nice neat little pile You're the cutest girl I've ever seen in my life But it's over now, I'm with my knife Dying, dying, dying Dying, dying, dying Dying, dying, dying Dying, dying, dying Um, so you all up, you got twelve tracks on the record. You've also got another fifteen songs um, on the bonus CD, right? Uh, the CD comes with the second second disc, the uh, the bonus CD. Um, that, that's from your archives, right? Because they talk us through that. It's literally songs. One song that's across your fifteen records, fifteen studio. That's another thing, man. Fifteen studio records. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah that's uh that's that's not that's not a bad work rate when you think about that spread over 30 years that's no, pretty absolutely. crazy yeah there's no no guns and roses uh 14 years to record a record there <laughs> no there's no there's no tool type hiatuses <laughs> or you know um yeah no it's, it's good you know but even when i think of you know we, we start off pretty crazy because when i look at the first five years of the band, there was there was five albums in five years, plus non-stop touring and B-sides and extra releases and all the rest of it, which just was insane when I think on it now. You know, I don't, you know, I don't think we we must have slept. We probably did. Oh, I know for a fact some people didn't sleep those first five <laughs> years. But you know, you were always doing something. If there was days off, you know, you would go into a studio or if you were on tour you would go in somewhere or you're in between festivals so um yeah that's the work ethic was always there with regard to to, to recording stuff and we never messed about in the studio um either and that was kind of we wanted obviously you know there's, there's, there's different a lot of different kind of sounding records within the back catalog and that's why we sort of wanted to also do something for the 30th anniversary that wasn't just these greatest hits. So that's when we hit upon the idea of the the official bootleg, as we call it. And um, I basically, like I've got all the shows, you know, now digitized that we have recorded right back from nearly day one. So there's there's thousands of shows on, you know, just on hard drives and stuff. Some are obviously just tapes, some are audio, uh, crowd audio recordings, some are multi-track recordings, you know, obviously quality varies so we just um once it worked out that i wanted to 
use a song that had never had a commercial live release. So it was never had never been a live B side. So once you do that, that kind of narrows it down quite considerably. And I didn't want anything that had been maybe on a radio broadcast or something like that. So it was just find those songs that we'd maybe played for just one tour and finding a decent usable version of it. And there was a lot of chopping and changing. So you got, for example, the um the version of Jude the Obscene, even though it's from Infernal Love, which was released in ninety five. It's actually from one of the 2015 shows, you know, when we did kind of an album and full tour. So it kind of jumps around, but there's literally, I think the first recording on it is 1990, and then the last one's like 2018. So it's a good overview of the different lineups and the different albums and stuff like that. And they are, you know, they're pretty obscure, deep cuts. So um, it was good because, you know, if you've already got, 10 versions of Scream Age or, you know, on various albums and stuff like that. It's highly unlikely you probably had a live version of Body Bag Girl, you know. Yeah. Like, I, I love the the song selection is just so good on this. There's, there's a few songs that are missing, but um, um, just through personal favourites, you know, you, you, you could have done a, a – you could have made it two songs from every record. Would have been would have been amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've we've got the stuff there to do. You know, volume two, Darren. <laughs> the volume two. This time it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> volume two, the revenge. <laughs> Absolutely. Now that's that's great, and it's great that it was chosen by by you guys, and it's all your your footage. That's that's just super cool. It's really, really, really cool. Oh, good. No, I'm glad it comes across, and we also um, as part of the package, we wanted to write. The sleeve notes, which me and Andy did. Yep. So um, I think that's just a good way of kind of, it, you know, giving it everyone a bit of an idea behind the mindset. And, you know, a lot of the live gigs, you know, there was obviously, there were shows that I think there was one in Switzerland that was just one of the most, you know, depressing days ever. But the gig was great, you know, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's just giving people a bit of an insight into the, the machinations of, what goes on behind the scenes of a, a touring working band, you know, like ourselves and the kind of the highs and lows that, you know, you will get over 30 years, you know, they just, just, just like life, you've ups and downs and, you know, some days you're feeling great and some days you're not, but the common thread throughout the whole thing is the music is the most important thing. That's the only reason we formed a band in 1989 that's the only reason we wanted to play a concert was because we liked the music we were playing. And that's the only reason we're about today is because we we like the music. We like music in general, but we're, we're very into our own music as well. So it's kind of, um, it, it just brings the focus on that. You know, when we started the band, it was never about, I want to be in TV or, you know, I want to have a sports car or, you know, have a mansion. You know, that was never, you know, the, the, that was never the, the ambition or the goal, you know, and it's, you know, we have kind of the joke about so much for the 10-year plan. Now we're on to so much for the 30-year plan, you know. So it's kind of um, – it's all been working out pretty good. And it just goes to show that, you know, if you believe in what you're doing, you're into what you're doing, you know, you can you can really get out there and and, and stay sane and stay happy and stay friends and, and be productive. It's, it's, it's really, like I said earlier, it's a real privilege to be able to do what we do, you know.
I found a, a funny thing from my chat with Andy where he said that you guys played a big festival in 1992 and then Rolling Stone magazine flew over to do an interview with you guys. And um, they said, you're about to release your first major album. Do you guys see yourselves like the Rolling Stones? And then the journalist said that all three band members burst out laughing and said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> do you know what? You know, um, yeah, that's that's nuts. You know, like like I said, the ambitions were always very, um, not small, but they were always kind of, we'll just do what we do. And everything kind of fell into one. But no, there was never, you know, like I said, we was never going, yeah, in 30 years' time we'll be doing this. It was never a Rolling Stones type thing. But um, that, I suppose that's the joy of it because there's always, you know, new different things. And um, what I really like about it as well, that we're all still friends in the band. You know, we got on very well. Um, one of these kind of rock and roll cliches is that, which I don't subscribe to, is that you need creative tension, you know, you know, to, to, to make good art. I think you can make good art for maybe one or two albums, but if you don't actually like each other or respect each other, you're going to fall out over who drank the last beer and you're going to split the band up over something really dumb, you know? So you kind of have to have that friendship and loyalty and respect. I think that's probably the, the key thing, which a, a lot of, um, you know, bands and partnerships like that they, they 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 feel like they have to be arguing about stuff and i'd much rather i think all of us are much would much rather and we're, we've got a lot better over the years not always this is only something we've learned over 30 years you know you have to give and take a band it's a it's a collaboration you know it's not a compromise it's a collaboration and i think a lot of people see it as I personally have to compromise my vision. It's like, no, 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 you can combine your vision and collaborate to make something better. And I think that's what we've done um, on, on, on every project we've worked on. You know, the sum of it is is much better than the individual elements. So um, that's been, um, like I said, it takes you 30 years to learn that kind of thing. <laughs> Why aren't you using my riffs? My riffs are the best riffs. <laughs> Um, mate, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, as always, absolutely. always a pleasure. Good, good, good to chat to you too, Nick. Nick, yeah, um, good chatting to you, man. Hopefully, um, you know, I, we unfortunately we don't have any Scandinavian or Swedish plans at all. But you, you live in you live in hope. You know, we had a really good time at Sweden Rocks a few years right. back. It was good. It was a great show. So you there, Mister Edwards? Um, so yeah hopefully yeah fingers crossed you know as I say you never know what's around the corner so if we could get back we'll be over there in a shot you know got a lot of friends there and you know a lot of love for the music scene over there in Sweden as well you know um, massive fans of a lot of the bands out there it's, it's just ridiculous it's um, as a music fan I love it when you when you go to a show here and you're kind of backstage and who who's in the dressing room or who's in the after show is just ridiculous. It's literally <laughs> the, the fucking who's who of, of metal. It's great. Oh, brilliant. No, it's good. It's, it's, it's such a, a revered scene across the world. It's brilliant. You know, it's really good. It takes me back, you know, Swedish death metal. That was my first real exposure to, to the scene over here. 
And, um, you know, in those 30 years, it's come a long way. You know, recently I went to see um, Ghost down in Dublin yep. playing playing the Enormo Dome, you know, and it was unbelievable. The show was unbelievable. I'm a big fan, but um, that show blew, blew my mind, you know, really yeah. good. So, you know, right, right back to those early Nihilist demos just to see where it's all come from. And I missed the first kind of bands like Oz and Pretty Maids and stuff like that. I never really... You know, they didn't really get over to, to the UK. So it's kind of amazing what a, a worldwide and well-respected, you know, scene it is. Fair play. Yep, absolutely. Um, love to the family, man. We'll we'll talk to you soon. And, yes. Um, and thanks for your time, mate. Brilliant. Always Take a pleasure, care. guys. Thank you. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you. Yeah.